This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. Law & Behold is of course our monthly series which aims to arm Malaysians with constitutional literacy and is done in collaboration with the good folks from the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law and the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. So Article 8, Clause 1 of the Federal Constitution reads, All persons are equal before the law and entitled to equal protection of the law. So the law implies that every person is equally subject to the law regardless of their social social, political and economic status. While equality is not defined, it has been the subject of interpretation. So today on the show, we want to discuss what equality before the law means, especially with regard to intersectionality, uh, things like poverty and human rights. And joining me to do that are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Firdaus Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Hi, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Yeah. I'm good. Thank you. How are you, Juliet? Very well. Thank you. Always good to see you guys and to have you guys back on the show. So we're going to tackle Article 8 uh, today, isn't it? And as I mentioned, uh, it states that all Malaysians are equal under the law and enjoy the equal protection of the law. But I do know there is something which says except as expressly authorised by this constitution. <laughs> so so yeah. there are, of course, exceptions. And we'll get to that. But maybe we can talk about... Uh, our constitution in terms of provisions on equality. You know, as we've spoken about on the show, uh, the constitution has a chapter on fundamental liberties. Um, I guess, you know, what are some of the constitutional provisions for equality and non-discrimination in uh, in the constitution? Prof, you want to uh, take that first? Okay, yes, thank you. Um, before I answer your learned question, let me just say that no constitutional ideal is as worthy and yet as unattainable as the ideal of equality before the law. Uh, I know that in the American constitution, they say that all men are born equal, and that this is a truth that is self-evident. In fact, my view is that there is nothing self-evident about equality. If you look at the history of the world, almost everywhere in the world, um, we follow the rule of nature that big fish eat small fish, that the strong prevail over the weak. In almost all nations, including the nations of the liberal West, there is a history of slavery, sex discrimination, exploitation, um, poverty, etc. Nevertheless, of course, you're right. uh, um, uh, The Constitution cannot pander to existentialist realities. It has to hitch itself to the stars. It has to be transformative. Uh, It has to uh, distill its ideals from philosophy and from morality. And so you are very right that our constitution in Article 8, Clause 1 says, all persons are equal before the law and entitled to the equal protection of the law. I I note with pride that our constitution maker said all persons They did not say all men, (laughs) as in the American constitution, but that was long time ago. Um, May I also point out that along with Article 8, Clause 1, there are innumerable other provisions in the constitution that actually uh, seek to uh, 
uh, promote equality. For example, Article 8, Clause 2 says that there shall be no discrimination unless expressly authorized on five grounds, religion, race, sex, descent, or place of birth. So the constitution was clearly built on the general ideal of equality. First of all, there shall be equality before the law. And then to reiterate that, there shall be no discrimination on these five grounds. An interesting question is, uh, uh, what if the discrimination is not on these five prohibited grounds, but on other grounds? Let us say, looks. I apply for a job, uh, uh, but because of my looks or the uh, uh, my height, um, uh, the color of my skin, I'm denied a job. Is that violation of equality before the law? There are two views. One view of some scholars is that Discrimination is forbidden only on five grounds. And so that's all. On other grounds, it's possible to discriminate. Mm. I don't accept that view. I think Article 8, Clause 2, banning discrimination on five grounds, must be read along with Article 8, Clause 1, which is a generic provision, broad provision. All persons are equal before the law. So in my view, Article 8, Clause 2 merely reiterates five special areas where no discrimination is allowed, but the general rule of equality is there. May I very quickly also point out many of the provisions in the chapter on fundamental rights are without any discrimination. For example, Article 5, Clause 1 says, no person shall be deprived of his life or liberty, save in accordance with law. Citizenship provisions are not based on race or religion though I must sadly confess that there is some discrimination on grounds of gender in citizenship laws. Electoral laws treat all citizens uh, equally, irrespective of race or religion. Uh, education, Article 12, uh, gives equal rights in respect of primary and secondary education to all persons. Religious education is allowed to all groups um, uh, in their own religion. Uh, this may surprise many of your listeners, Juliet. In the civil service, there is to be no discrimination on grounds of race. Would you believe that? <laughs> Article 136. But of course, 136 must be read along with 153. Mm. Special position of the Malays and the natives of Sabah, Sarawak. So the overall effect of the two articles is that at entry point, quotas and reservations can be made. But once in service, there should be no discrimination on grounds of race. That's what the Parlambagan says. That's what the constitution says. Then in terms of national language, though Malay language is the national language, vernacular schools in Chinese and Tamil are allowed to exist and to receive federal support. So vernacular schools actually have a sort of a constitutional basis. In penal laws, and this is something Firdos uh, could help me on, I think over the years, because of the activism of many groups, many individuals like Firdos, the penal code has been amended repeatedly to take note of feminist thinking on such issues as rape, 
incest and abortion. And finally, um, we have uh, one wonderful precedent uh, uh, in the case of Noor Fadila Ahmed Saikin, where a trainee teacher was dismissed, trainee teacher was dismissed on the ground that she became pregnant. Yeah. And the court said this is gender inequality. So I just wanted to point out, it's not only Article 8. The ideal of equality actually runs through the Constitution in many, many parts. Though, of course, there are many exceptions. And I have to sadly say, as in many other countries, there is a wide gap between the theory of the law and the practice of the law. The promise and the performance uh, don't go hand in hand. Thank you. And Fridawis, you know, if, um, I mean, Prof has laid it out so beautifully, but is there anything else that you wanted to add to what he has already mentioned? Sure. Uh, a couple of things that I want to add and take on from uh, what uh, Professor just mentioned earlier. Uh, now, um, Number one, I thought it's uh, it's uh, timely that Professor mentioned the case of Nurfadila Ahmad Saikin because that case did not just uh, make reference to the federal constitution but also the international uh, human rights yes. standards. Yes, uh, and that is the uh, International Convention uh, on um, uh, Elimination of uh, All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. Uh, yeah. And to me, this is one of the uh, one of the way uh, that we should interpret our constitution when it comes to be it equality or any other provision. It is with that aspiration that we should uh, be reading the federal constitution with. Now, on the point of uh, gender, uh, gender equality, it's interesting also to note that it was only in 2001 that the word yes. gender was imported yeah, uh, into the federal constitution, specifically Article 8.2. And this further substantiate prof point earlier that when we talk about you know, the ideals of human rights and equality at the same time, they are cultural, uh, historical, uh, and structural uh, factors that should be taken into account. And the fact that this was only added into 2001, I think further proved that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that was one. And uh, another thing that I would like to add also is that when we look at the international human rights principles, the whole notion of equality, we see that in uh, across uh, international treaties, international human rights treaties. I mean, starting from the UDHR itself, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which uh, mentioned uh, and stresses equal in dignity of everyone, equal in human rights of everyone. So when we, when we talk about everyone being entitled to equality, uh, everyone being entitled to uh, human rights, they are entitled to these rights in equal measure. Uh, and that in itself is premised upon the notion of equality. And in ISIL, in the preamble of ISIL, also talks about dignity and equality being inherent in all of us. Uh, and to me, again, this, this uh, reflects the ideal that we should be interpreting our, our other human rights with. And it was good that Prof mentioned the, all of other provisions uh, on the right to vote, the right to uh, citizenship, to education, because if you see all of the constitutional challenges that are filed, many of these are coupled with Article 8. 
as its premise, right? So, for example, uh, let's take the uh, challenge against the Negeri Sembilan uh, Syariah enactment. Again, okay. uh, that criminalizes uh, cross-dressing uh, by transgenders. That was also coupled with Article 8. And then the judgment of Justice Lee Sui Singh on the unilateral conversion, that was also coupled with Article 8 to say that both parents should have equal say. Uh, on the upbringing, uh, religious upbringing of the child. And then in the recent case uh, uh, that was filed by Family Frontiers, the right to citizenship, that was also coupled with Article 8. It was not just part two on citizenship. Mm. Yeah. So to me, further, you know, further proving that when we talk about um, human rights, uh, it is equality should be the spectrum that we should be looking at the entitlement and uh, the enjoyment of these rights. I'll stop here for now. Okay. All right. Uh, Prof, did you want to respond to anything for that was just said? No, actually, she said some things. Yes, I do want to respond. Uh, uh, not just to respond, but to back her up. Uh, she said some things very, very important. Uh, and may I add that though international law is not part of our definition of law in Article 160, Clause 2, which says law includes written law, common law, and custom, and doesn't mention international law. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, I agree with Firdaus that our judges in interpreting our constitution should drink from the fountain of international law on one important constitutional basis, and that is this. The definition of law in Article 160, Clause 2, reads like this. It says, law includes. It doesn't say law means. Law includes means the definition is not exhaustive. It is inclusive. So law includes three things, written law, common law, and custom. Secondly, Juliet, it includes common law. Common law means judge-made law. And it's the common law of England. In England, there are scores of decisions where the judges of the English courts have said that there is a presumption that when Parliament passes a law, it does not intend to violate Her Majesty's obligation under international law. In my view, that common law rule can well be read into our legal system that when our parliament passes a law, the presumption is that CEDAW and ICERD and Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other such international signposts are actually part of our law. So that's one thing very important. Uh, the other thing, very briefly, I'll mention, uh, Firdaus is entirely correct. She should come and teach my students in constitutional law. <laughs> She's entirely correct that Article 8 mm -hmm. actually must be read into other articles of the constitution. I think fundamental rights are not lone signposts. I think they are part of a mighty stream fed by many tributaries. So personal liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, and equality, I think they must be read together. So I agree with you that uh, even if it's a case in freedom of speech or freedom of religion or personal liberty, Article 8 must be brought in. 
Okay. All right, let's just go for a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about the constitutional exceptions. I'm speaking today <laughs> to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Firdaus Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. It's another episode of Law and Behold. We're talking about equality before the law with a special focus on Article 8. We'll be back after this quick break. You're listening to Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Law & Behold is, of course, our monthly series where we want to get you up to speed on your constitutional literacy. It's done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law and the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. Joining me today are Emeritus Professor Dato Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and Firdaus Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. It's our 46th episode I just wanted you guys to know that. And we're talking about equality before the law today with a special focus on Article 8 of the Federal Constitution. So as we mentioned before, um, Article 8, Clause 1 of the Federal Constitution says all persons are equal before the law and entitled to equal protection of the law. But of course, there are exceptions. Uh, Prof, maybe you want to walk us through um, what, the, <laughs> what some of those exceptions are. It's going to be a long walk. <laughs> Quite a few. The exceptions are many, but uh, I must quickly add, this is so in almost all the nations of the world. Many of the exceptions are uh, necessary. For example, judges uh, will be immune from the law of defamation or any other law uh, in the course of their judicial proceedings. Members of parliament have privileges of freedom of speech. Uh, let's just go through a long list. Uh, first of all, the king and the sultans, uh, they must be Malays, they must be Muslims, uh, unlike in England where, uh, of course, the monarch can be a female. Uh, our history and our culture uh, imposes some indigenous uh, rules. Under Articles 181 to 183, though the Malaysian king and the Malaysian rulers can be prosecuted in a court of law, but there's a special court and there are special procedures. Then, of course, there is Malay special position, which is a huge exception because the Malays and the natives of Sabah Sarawak constitute nearly 65% of the population. Uh, they have a special position guaranteed to them under Article 153. But what I wish to point out is that this special position is in clearly defined four areas. It's not across the board. It's not in everything. Mm -hmm. These four areas are scholarships, educational and training facilities, positions in the public service, and permits or licenses for the operation of trade and business. Um, uh, let me go over that again. Positions in the public service. Number two, scholarships, educational training facilities. Number three, permits or licenses. And number four, uh, places in post-secondary educational institutions. Then, of course, Islam as the official religion obviously creates a, a lot of exceptions. Uh, taxpayers' money can be used to promote Islamic institutions. And because of Islam as the official religion, Muslims are compulsorily subject to the Sharia and to Islamic education. But followers of other religions are not compulsorily subject to their religious laws. A Muslim cannot apostate without permission of the Sharia authorities. Non-Muslims cannot preach to their 
preach their religion to Muslims because of Article 11, Clause 4. Then when it comes to personal laws and Sharia codes, uh, Article 11, Clause 5, uh, we all know, 11, Clause 5 says the equality provision doesn't apply to personal laws. For a very long time, actually, other communities also had their personal laws. But then because of the non-Muslim Marriage and Divorce Act, now actually for non-Muslim, there is a common law. There is a uniform law, but Muslims are still subject to their personal laws. And in Muslim personal laws, especially Muslim family laws, there is a fair amount of distinction or discrimination uh, against uh, females. Religious institutions can be reserved for persons professing that religion, Article 8, Clause 5 says. So there was a, a scholar a non-Muslim lady who had obtained a diploma in Sharia from the Islamic University. She wanted to become a Sharia lawyer and she was told she cannot do so because uh, the position of Sharia lawyers will be allowed only to Muslims. Mm. The Malay regiment is reserved for Malays. Malay reserves uh, are allowed by Article 18. Then Saba Sarawak in our federal system have many special rights which other states do not have. Native courts exist. Native lands are protected. In the nine Malay states in West Malaysia, the chief minister must be a Malay unless the Sultan provides an exception. In citizenship laws, sadly, there is gender discrimination in the sense that in many areas, the child will receive citizenship from the father, not from the mother. Uh, uh, this is especially so when it comes to illegitimate children. Sorry, uh, but when it comes to illegitimate children, the position reverses. Illegitimate children must receive citizenship from the mother and the father's citizenship is ignored. Yeah. We have had cases where the father is a Malaysian. The mother was, let us say, a foreign uh, lady. The child was born uh, in Malaysia, but the law says, oh, the mother's citizenship must be followed by the child, which is very, very unfair. And Firdaus was mentioning that case earlier. Mm. Electoral constituencies are not equal in population size. One constituency can be 25,000, another can be 250,000. Uh, that means there is no weightage for each vote. Uh, sadly, in the private sector, Beatrice versus Fernandez versus system Panarbangan Malaysia, it was held that the constitutional right to equality doesn't apply in the private sector. And uh, 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 finally, uh, no, there are two more points. Non-citizens are not protected by our constitution in many, many areas. So, for example, I go to a hospital, a non-citizen goes to a hospital, he will have to pay more fees. Uh, same for education, non-citizen children do not have the same protection. And, and finally, um, Juliet, the courts have said that discrimination against citizens or non-citizens is permissible if it is rational and reasonable. And if it has a nexus 
a connection with the object sought to be achieved. So despite what Article 8, Clause 1 says, all persons are equal before the law. The courts, the common law courts, have created a new exception. The exception is that any discrimination is reasonable if it is rational and reasonable. I mean, I just give one quick example. There was a case of Menon versus government. Menon was a civil servant. He retired. Then he got his pension. Mm -hmm. But then after retiring, he decided to go and stay abroad. Went back to the land of his ancestors, which happened in this case to be India. They reduced his pension because they said there is a law which says if you're staying abroad, then your pension will be reduced. He said, that's discrimination. All of us who retired must receive pension on the same formula. Last drawn salary, uh, multiplied by the number of months served, multiplied by a special formula, 0, 0.00 something. Everyone must be treated alike, no matter where he lives. The court said, no, 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 it is reasonable because the cost of living in India is lesser. I personally think this is a terrible decision because if someone goes and lives in New York because the cost of living there is higher, will the pension be higher? I, I don't think so. Yeah. So I, I think where one lives is irrelevant. Pension should be calculated on the basis of last drawn salary plus uh, multiplied by the number of months served, multiplied by the formula. So the courts have reduced the area of equality by creating this. There are a number of other cases where the court have said, though there is discrimination, either by the law or by the executive action, is justifiable because it is reasonable. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Firdaus, you know, just on that that note of you know what is reasonable. I mean, we are not a homogenous group. Uh, you know, there's so so many different members of society. There's you know that phrase that we use, intersectionality, isn't it? I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, you know how our federal constitution guarantees uh, you know the rights of everyone in terms of you know that those intersectionalities that do exist. You know, and we can't say that they don't. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and intersectionality to me, is an approach that we all should be taking when we look at equality from now on. Because when we talk about equality, and we are not talking about this enough, when we talk about equality, it is more than mere formal equality as to what's on the paper. Equality. It should be more than that. Uh, And a quick example, and I will take on from what uh, Prof just said earlier, Prof mentioned uh, the uh, right to vote. Mm example right but if if you were to look at this from a gender perspective um, in Malaysia we have universal suffrage you know uh, men and women can uh, vote yeah and that also reflects the fact that men and women can both participate in uh, uh, in public and political life but then when we see how many women sits in the parliament how many (laughs) woman is holding a ministerial post, for example. So to me, that is a reflection of how an approach to formal equality is not sufficient, Mm. that we should be instead striving towards achieving substantive equality. And substantive equality demands that we recognize that not everyone starts at the same point. 
not everyone has the same privileges as the next person, even though you may be of the same gender even. Uh, and that one of the tools to, to uh, uh, recognize and properly analyze this is the intersectionality tool. And that tool essentially requires us to realize that each of us has different facets of identity identity that makes us who we are. Um, so for example, Juliet, even though you and I, we are both women, but, but we are experiencing that experience of being a woman differently due to the different layers that makes us who we are mm -hmm. in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of socioeconomic background, for example. And that is to me, the approach with which when we, whenever we talk about the NEP, the National Economic Policy, and how, uh, um, you know, quota given to uh, the uh, the Bumiputra, which is, you know, being criticised uh, now and again, where people say it's, it's very outdated that we look at it solely from a race perspective, because there are all of these uh, different layers of discrimination, yeah, uh, uh, that will that will make your analysis based on race solely inaccurate. Mm. Uh, and so therefore, the deserving people who should be receiving those benefits will not be the one getting it. Uh, and so that is what intersectionality is. And I want to connect that to another notion, what it's called the affirmative action. Um, some people call it positive discrimination. I personally don't like that phrase. Like, how can <laughs> discrimination be positive? <laughs> but affirmative action is a notion that we that we take uh, with the sole purpose of achieving equality in the first place. Right. That's why it's called affirmative action. That's why we need to uh, affirm that particular action to be taken in order for certain group with certain dis disadvantages to have that same access uh, to opportunities in life. Yeah. yeah, and um, I just want to um, quickly uh, uh, add uh, something before I end, that when we talk about affirmative action, um, they are even international standards. Because if we are not uh, careful with implementation of affirmative action, it can easily transcend into further discrimination instead of achieving equality. And those international standards are, number one, it should be legitimate. Number two, it should be necessary in a democratic society. Number three, it should respect fairness. It should respect proportionality. And lastly, lastly, it should be temporary. Last but not least, it should be temporary because if we if we don't well adhere and respect to any of these uh, well uh, principles, international uh, standards and principles, I as I mentioned earlier then instead of achieving equality, it can easily, as I'm sure, not just the case in Malaysia, but in other countries as well, it, uh, in fact, what, what does uh, produce, the, the, the effect that it produces is a maintenance of a special condition for a special group mm -hmm. at the expense of other groups. And that cannot be right when we talk about equality. I'll, I'll stop here for now. Thank you. Okay, all right. Uh, Prof, is there anything you wanted to, to add to that before I move yeah, on? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Firdos is right. When it comes to affirmative action, it obviously must be guided by some ideals. And may I just point out to your listeners that actually the Malaysian constitution, though not entirely 
in line with international law. Nevertheless, in Article 153, Clause 2, uses the words as may be necessary. So the word necessary is used, which Firdaus also used. Secondly, such proportion as he may deem reasonable. So the Article 153, Clause 2 uses the word proportion not outright allocation, and it uses the word reasonable. Uh, so the young departonagong, which means the government of the day, actually must be guided by issues of necessity, proportionality, reasonableness. And I think it's entirely possible to rethink existing policies and strategies to make them need-based rather than be based entirely on race. Okay. All right. We'll just uh, go for one more quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about, you know, everything that we've discussed and, you know, how we can actually, I guess, move forward from that. What are the challenges, you know, all of this presents? I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and Firdaus Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. This is another episode of Law and Behold. We're talking about equality before the law. We'll be back after one more quick break. You're listening to Law and Behold. Hold on the bigger picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Law and Behold on the bigger picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Law and Behold is our monthly series where we want to get everyone up to date and on the same page when it comes to their constitutional literacy. Uh, it's done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law, and the Blazin Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. My guests today are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, the holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya. And Firdawas Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. So as I mentioned, we're talking about equality before the law. We're talking about uh, Article 8 uh, and Clause 1, as we mentioned uh, many times on the show today, reads yeah. that all persons are equal before the law and entitled to equal protection of the law. And of course, as we have said, that law implies that every person is equally subject to the law, regardless of their social, political and economic status. But as again, we have spoken about, there are exceptions to that. So, you know, based on everything that we've just discussed, I guess, you know, what are the challenges that are presented, you know, with these exceptions, with the way the law reads? You know, what are some of the things that are that are happening because of it, uh, Prof? Yeah, thank you. Let me begin by pointing out that these challenges to the ideal of equality are universal. They are complex, they are multidimensional, and there is no magic wand. Um <laughs> to enable us to solve these. I have three challenges in mind, um, though I know there are many more and Firdaus may want to add. First of all, structural and systemic inequalities. By which I, what I mean is this, that many laws and structures and institutions of society are founded on and inspired by feudal notions. They institutionalize exploitation hierarchies and the inequality. Family law is a good example. It perpetuates gender inequality and non-egalitarian notions of what is just and proper. But we don't look at it this way because the standards we adopt are the standards of culture or religion or tradition. And we say that must be right. But actually, basically it perpetuates. May I give another example? Uh, land law. So if you and I have a land title, we are owners of the land. But that system 
is grossly unjust for the orang asli because they don't have the idea of individual ownership necessarily of land of land there is the communal ownership they believe that land belongs to them because their ancestors are buried there because the souls of their ancestors roam the forest they believe the land is theirs because they have mixed their their blood sweat and toil with the soil that's their concept our concept is you are a squatter because you don't have the title so national land code is meant to be equal for everyone irrespective of race or religion or gender but actually it is a structural systemic inequality there are laws against begging and vagrancy if you sleep under the bridge or on the pavement you are committing a minor criminal offense basically what the law is doing is it is criminalizing poverty the judicial process is of course promoting equality but is it really because the entire process is such that unless you have a lawyer which costs a lot of money you can't get justice so the entire judicial process is hostile to the indigent to the person who is poor in the legal process thousands of unrepresented accused have no chance of equal justice many years ago i read an article by our learned uh, lawyer and professor uh, dato gurdial singh nijar he did a study at the kuala lumpur courts he said 65% of the accused were unrepresented mm. so though on paper there is equal justice on one side you have a trained public prosecutor ready to ensnare the uh, ignorant uneducated poor accused so these are actually structural systemic inequalities uh, and i'll just give uh, one more example uh, then i'll move on in criminal law there is the law of provocation so if i provoke you and you react immediately uh, you are entitled to the law of private defense but if you go back home uh, and then bring a stick or a gun and then you react it's too late you are guilty of a criminal offense now it looks like it's equal law applicable to everyone but many feminists have pointed out that actually this law on private defense this law that says that the reaction must be immediate is based on male psychology males react to provocation to violence in a red hot manner women absorb and absorb especially in domestic violence they absorb years of violence then one day they react by that time it's too late too late for the right of private defense so many parts of our criminal law are based on male psychology the law of rape has been improved because of the uh, activism of women uh, the law of rape now says that you can't uh, introduce into the court the woman's sexual history with others but even today you can introduce into the court the woman's sexual history with the alleged rapist now this means that the victim 
will first be raped by the rapist and a second time in the court by the rapist lawyer who will introduce all the relationship so a lot of these are systemic injustices a second point is what firdos was pointing out formal versus functional equality so women and men have an equal right to vote equal right to contest we've got only about 25 mps out of 222 222 mps in the dewan raya then finally should it be equal rights or separate rights firdos was pointing out that actually in many many areas the principle of intersectionality requires that you resort to affirmative action to bring up those who are disadvantaged a simple example would be i clock in at 8 o'clock and you clock in at 8 o'clock we are treated equally but if the reality is if the reality is and i believe it is that our culture requires mothers women to take care of the home of the children the breakfast uh, if there is domestic servant send the kids to school the reality is that much of the domestic work actually is in the hands of women so i think there should be flexi working hours because the rule that we all clock in at the same time works to the disadvantage of those who because of culture and tradition and even religion are subjected to greater responsibilities so i think these are the challenges of the future around the world thank you couldn't agree with you more on that last point professor living proof of that <laughs> i felt Thank that too. i felt that in my soul for that was yeah sorry for that was what would you like to add to in terms of you know the challenges all of this presents yeah sure um yeah i like that uh, prof mentioned that last point even though i'm not yet a mother <laughs> uh, and these are some of the things the uh, what people would say uh, what, or what people would call hidden barriers hidden uh, barriers talk about equality we don't see this hidden barriers uh, social expectation on uh, uh, on women for example um, you you know you want women for example you uh, want female employee to also benefit from say overtime compensation but then the streets are not safe people don't see this as also a hidden barrier for example so these are some of the some of the uh, uh, things that one must take into account when we analyze the notion of equality and how it implement how it is implemented within the society or not implemented um, i do like to uh, end with a couple of uh, things and conclusion from my end uh, and number one uh would be uh the case of uh, Beatrice Fernandez which professor mentioned earlier i think even looking at that case alone it's obvious that a private entity can also deny enjoyment of sure. a human right by a citizen yeah. and when we look at especially now well in well in the era of globalization corporation alone can be more powerful than a nation with you know uh, uh, ample resources uh, uh, and so therefore we really need to look at how when we talk about violation of human rights it's not just the governments uh, private entities too so that's one uh, and number two there's a whole host of conversation about uh, protection of the rights of the minority and to me what is what this conversation is premised upon is the ideals of achieving equality why are we you know be it in among the international community or even domestically 
we are you know talking about uh, protection of either uh, indigenous community for example or the racial minority religious minority sexual minority all of this is because it's a reflection that we are still falling short from achieving that ideal of uh, equality uh, so that's my other point and my next point is also that to all the listeners out there i hope one one of the things that you can take away from this conversation is that when you look at the federal constitution next, we are always quick to point out the, the distinct special treatment to groups, but not so quick when, when we want to also quote the safeguards, safeguards that are also in the federal constitution to prevent abuse, to prevent uh, injustice, to prevent discrimination, uh, Sharia law, for example. The safeguard is that it shouldn't be applied to uh, the non-Muslims. It shouldn't be applied to corporations. That's one of the safeguards. It's there in the federal constitution. When we talk about um, uh, religion, while Islam is the religion of the federation, other religion may be practiced in peace and harmony. These are just very two simple examples of the fact that even in the constitution itself, the safeguards are there, but more often than not, you will not hear it in national conversations and debate. And so lastly, I feel that uh, if we want to talk about the nation achieving a true notion of equality, I think all of us as a society should um, have or rather should take an inward reflection of how we define equality. Are we actually looking at what, what Prof said, rational classification, or are we making excuses to justify or excuse the uh, violation that, that we made. Uh, and, and I will end here. And I hope, you know, I hope when we talk about lawmaking after this and, and any other, any other um, area of law reform, um, it is this kind of thinking that we should be taking into account. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Firdaus. And uh, Prof, you know, any concluding message you'd like to leave us with? I just want to support what Firdaus said just now, that private sector is often just as powerful in some cases, even more than the state. And I think tyranny is tyranny, whether it comes from across the border, it comes from the private sector, or it comes from the public sector. I think there should be protection. I totally disagree with the decision in the Beatrice Fernandez case where the court made the astounding and regrettable uh, decision that constitutional law is meant primarily to protect us from the public sector, from the government's action. If there is a constitution, in my view, if there is a constitution, it must protect us from tyranny from all sources. So that's uh, what I want to say. Okay. I think the constitution, I agree with Fredos, there are many safeguards. What is important is constitutional literacy, which BFM is trying to promote. And I think if this literacy is enhanced, I think the issues of inequality will be mitigated if we realize that the constitution did try to walk the middle path of moderation, compassion, and accommodation. Thank you.
Thank you so much, both of you. I think, you know, what I'm getting from this also, we cannot just think of uh, equality in terms of how that benefits us. It has to be an all-of-society approach. Of course, it needs of, to, course <laughs> of course. It needs to be so much more than that. Well, thank you so much to both of my guests. I've been speaking to Emeritus Professor Dato Dr. Haji Shat Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair, University of Malaya, and Firdaus Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. If you miss any part of our conversation, you can download the podcast at bfm.my slash learn or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.